All right, good morning. Can you please stand? I'm sorry. Can you please stand for the reading of God's word? <laughs> we should have just kept you up. Um, I didn't think that went through. I put this one in here. The text for today comes from the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to read a section from Luke chapter 2, verses uh, 33 to 35. Luke chapter 2, verses 33 to 35. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the uh, falling and rising of many in Israel. And to be a sign that will be spoken against. Verse 35. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will, will, will pierce his own soul too. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Please Lord speak, speak to us. Uh, this is your word. Uh, not created by man, not invented by man. It is your word. Uh, make it life Lord. Make it feel alive in our hearts. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So um, we are finishing this uh, short Advent series we have called Hidden Christmas. Um, and basically, if, if you have been with us, know that what we have been doing is going through certain passages in the Scripture that tells us the, the Christmas story and actually get the real meaning of Christmas. Um, and the section we're looking, uh, looking at today is not one of those passages that usually people read uh, during the Christmas season. Uh, because he's talking about these men that is almost unknown. I would say that it will be one of those, the forgotten ones in the Christmas story, and his name is Simeon. Um, and yet, I believe, and a lot of people believe, that this is one of those passages that you're supposed to preach during the Christmas story, because it gives us something really clear, something that we need to understand about what, what Christmas is all about. So I actually have one statement for you, and I'm going to read it really quick. It's, Christmas is both conflicting and unifying at the same time. The Christmas story is both conflicting and unifying at the same time. So what I want to do for the next two hours is just talk through that and explain what that means. All right? Now, in modern times, people will hear a statement like that and they will say, uh, they would say, well, that's, I, I like the first part. I like the second part of the statement. I don't like the first part. I, I, I like to see Christmas as a unifying season in the life of people. I like to see Christmas as the time when people come together and they forget their differences and they resolve their conflicts and everything is right again. This is kind of the spirit of the season, right? And I would say, yes, it's part of what Christmas is, but... Um, that's not the real Christmas story. The real Christmas story is not just about people coming together and forgetting their differences and having a good time. The Christmas story is much more than that. I would actually say you cannot have the second part of the statement in which we say that Christmas is unifying if we forget the first part of the statement, which says that Christmas brings conflict. I actually like to show you today uh, that the Christmas story is kind of divisive. It creates conflict. It creates conflicts between uh, people, and it creates a conflict within yourself. And in order for you to experience the unity of Christmas, 
you must first experience the conflict of Christmas. Um, so I, uh, hopefully this goes well, you know, because it's not in, an inspiring text. But I, but I think that it's an important message. So let me give you a little bit of context here. This happened 40 days after Jesus was born. So if you know a little bit of the Jewish tradition, um, eight days after the baby was born, they take the baby and the baby gets circumcised if it was a male, right? But then during this season, the mother is supposed to wait um, at least 40 days or another 33 days in order for her, for her to finish what the Old Testament called the purification process, right? So this event is taking place 40 days after Jesus was born. And Mary and Joseph take the baby then to the temple to be presented. That's the context. Um, and the reason for the presenting was to seek God's blessing upon the baby. So it was part, part of the tradition, and everyone uh, did that all the time. Now, we find in this narrative a man named Simeon, which is an unknown man. He's actually a regular man. Uh, what is interesting, though, is that the verses before the verses we just read, uh, from verses uh, 22 to 32, explains a little bit about this man. And it says that he was a righteous and devout man, a man that loved the Lord, uh, was committed to the Lord, followed the Lord. He was a man to be admired, yet he's an unknown man. Not, not a lot of people know him. But he tells us that this man was waiting for the Messiah, like everybody else. But it seems to be like if this man is really committed and he has been praying that he wants to see the Messiah. Now, this is one of the first parts where we see in the New Testament the Holy Spirit working. Because the text says that the Holy Spirit was upon him. And that the Holy Spirit had revealed to him uh, something about Jesus, the Messiah. It actually, the text says that the Holy Spirit drove or guided him to the temple so he could see Jesus and meet this promised Messiah. Now, every time we see the Holy Spirit working before the book of Acts, we know that the Holy Spirit is showing because it's something really important, extremely important. Because if you remember, the Holy Spirit arrives, if you will, later on in Pentecost, which will be in, in the book of Acts. So the fact that the Holy Spirit is working here with this unknown man tells you that what is about to happen is really important. That's the context. Now, Simeon sees this baby, and he blesses Jesus. And he says that this baby, this baby Jesus, is the salvation everyone has been waiting for. And then he says, and kind of prophesies, that this baby Jesus will be, um, would unite all the Gentiles and the Israelites together. That's all from verses 22 to 32. Now, when we get to verse 33, which is the verse that I started with, it says that the parents heard this and they marveled at that. That's a very important word, because it's almost like saying they were astonished. They were amazed by what they heard. But not because it was new information, but because it was information confirming what they had already heard. You know, Mary has an encounter, and she hears something like this, and Joseph has an encounter, and he heard something like this. Now, let's stop there for a second. Let's pause there for a second. Because up until this point, the story is amazing. It's the Christmas story. What we often forget, though, is that Simeon doesn't stop there. 
And there's a reason why I think a lot of people choose not to preach this text. Because what Simeon is about to say is what no one wants to hear. Actually, it doesn't invite people to church. That's the thing. Right? So if, if you're visiting, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. But that's what happened in Christmas. Simeon then proceeds to say something that no one ever expected. And I would say not a lot of people like. Verse 34. This child is destined... So stop there for a second, because it says this baby Jesus was chosen and sent for a reason, to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against. Now, I want you to try to absorb the meaning of that sentence. Most scholars would argue that that sentence alone has a double meaning. It means Two things at the same time. Number one, that people, it describes people's reactions to Jesus. That would be the first one. And the second one, it describes what the Christian lifestyle ought to be. Those are the two meanings of the same sentence. One, it describes people's reactions to Jesus. And two, it describes what the Christian life looks like. So look at the first one. It describes people's reactions to Jesus. Because the text says that when people meet Jesus, some would fall, meaning they will reject him, and some will rise, meaning they would embrace him. In other words, what, uh, what Simeon is saying is this. When you meet Jesus, when you encounter Jesus, you either, found him, either, you either find him repulsive and annoying or attractive and amazing. There's only two options when it comes to Jesus. Either you find him repulsive and annoying, or you find him attractive and amazing. That, was, that has always been the initial reaction when people encounter Jesus. It's all throughout the Bible. There's only two options. Either you were for him, or you were against him. That's why we have to say that Christmas, the Christmas story, brings conflict. I think that that was true then, and I also think this is true today. And we shouldn't be surprised by it. Either you find Jesus amazing or repulsive. So for the last two weeks, I have been reading uh, this book that talks about the revival, uh, different revivals in the, in the United States and different parts of the world. Um, and the author says that during those revivals, there was something, there was a common theme in every single revival. And he gives us a list of ten of them. But this is one of them. And he says that back in, during the revivals, if you wanted to know if a person became a Christian, you would never, um, you would never ask them, um, you would never ask things like, when were you converted? You would never ask them, um, uh, what happened when you got converted? He says that that's not a good question because people just give you religious answers. He says you cannot judge if a person is a Christian simply because they go to church or because they raise their hand in a service or because they participated in some evangelistic event. That's the whole argument of the book. He says that the, way, the only way for you to know if a person is a Christian, and I will actually, so let me ask you this. The only way you would know if you are a Christian is when you ask this question, what does Christ mean to you? What does Christ mean to you? 
What have you personally experienced with God? Is Christ important in your daily life? There's, those are the only two options. Either you find them beautiful and amazing, or you find them annoying and repulsive. That has been the story of Christianity forever. That's all you need to know. The way, you know why? This is simple, because the way people talk about Christ tells you the reality of their hearts. It's as simple as that. So I got to ask you, this Christmas story, what does Christ mean? What does Christ mean to you? So here's another one. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say that, um, that, that one of the ways in which you can find out if a person is a Christian, is a Christian, is to say, are you a Christian? It's a simple question. And if the person answers, I am trying, then that person is not a Christian. The person doesn't understand it. Because Christianity is not, is not about trying or doing better. It's about believing and repenting. You see the difference? That's exactly what Simeon is saying here. Some people will fall. Some people will rise. Some, some people will reject them, and some people will embrace them. That's just the reality of it. There's no, no options here. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle. It doesn't mean that we're still sinful. It doesn't mean any of that stuff. We're still sinful. But it's what Jesus is to you. So I was thinking about this one, because it's the last sermon of the year, so I didn't want to be so academic and, you know, all up here. So uh, I want to share a little bit about my story, because I truly believe that my conversion was kind of that. Um, so let me just say that right, right in the front. I am my, by no means I'm saying that I'm already finished. The transformation process is finished, right? Uh, by no means I'm saying that. What I am saying, though, is that when I got converted, it was conversion. And not because people, listen, I, I, I did not convert in a church, in this like, ch beautiful church like this. Not happened. It didn't happen to me. I did not get converted in a street evangelism. That didn't happen to me. I actually cannot even recall when is it that my, my heart changed. I just recall the season in my life. Maybe between ages 20 to 43, somewhere over there. <laughs> no, no, it's ages 20 to 21 in which something just happened. And I started having conversations with people and having conversations with my mom, which was the first Christian in my family, right? And I started reading the Bible out of nowhere. So I, I, I'm not saying that my, my story is unique. I just know that I found Jesus sweet and beautiful, right? And I listened to all this kind of lame music, like Dizzy Talk and Jars of Clay. And <laughs> nobody said that I had to listen to that music. So during that season, I was doing two things. I was playing soccer in college, and I was uh, majoring in Latin American literature. And it's so interesting because nobody ever told me that a Christian is supposed to brag about Jesus. It just happened, right? So I don't know if you know anything about soccer, but in soccer, you have your jersey, and then you always have an under T-shirt, right? And so I, I made myself this under T-shirt that, that said, I play for Jesus, Right? That was kind of corny, but it worked. It worked for me. Right? Um, so every time I was playing, I would, I would score a goal, which that didn't happen a lot. But, but every time I would score a goal, 
You know, I would go, I'll play for Jesus. Everyone, right? You know, you're supposed to brag about Jesus. I was proud of it. Every time somebody else would score a goal, I would brag about Jesus. It didn't matter, right? Because there was something inside of me that just changed. Now, because I'm studying literature, I have to read a lot of books. And I'm writing a lot of papers. And I'm doing a lot of presentations. And I remember one semester in specific in which everything I presented and everything I wrote had to do with Jesus. So, you know, you're supposed to read a book and then write this observation, all that stuff, right? And then I would say, oh, you know how this author talks about this topic? You know who else talks about that topic? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> right? Every presentation, and I remember at the beginning of the season, the professor, my professor, which is a Cuban, Cubans are always in my life, right? But um, this Cuban professor, she loved it. And she said, oh, Hannibal, this is great. She enjoyed the first three papers. <laughs> but then during the, during the middle of the semester, she said, Hannibal, maybe you should have a different topic. So in my personal life, it was just that. Either you find them amazing or distasteful. Either you find him beautiful and attractive or you reject them. So the question we have to ask is, why is it that for some people he becomes so amazing and for some people he doesn't? And I want you to ask yourself that question. So I'm not assuming that everyone here is a Christian. And I don't think you should assume that you are a Christian because it comes down to that. The interesting thing is that we don't have to guess because the text tells us that what makes the distinction between a person that, em that embraces Jesus or rejects Jesus is in verse 35. Because Simeon says that whenever we encounter Jesus, something happens. He reveals the thoughts of your heart. That's a crazy good statement. And a crazy dangerous statement. Every time we have an encounter with Jesus, he reveals the thoughts of our hearts. The word reveal there is a very important word because he's not talking about uh, him revealing the beauty that you have inside and how perfect you are and how amazing you are. Actually, the word reveal has negative connotations. Every time we encounter Jesus, he reveals or points to those things inside of us that are, inside of us that are still wrong. Meaning that every time we encounter Jesus, he shows you the reality of who you are. He shows you what you truly love if it's not him. He shows you what you truly trust in what you truly trust if it's not him. He shows you what you truly consider to be your identity if it's not in him. He shows you what is truly what you truly appreciate if it's not him. And that's a painful process. process. And it's uncomfortable. But because Jesus is good, and the Christmas story is good, we know that Jesus is like a good surgeon that makes you bleed before he heals you. That's why the Christmas story brings conflict. It's all through the Gospels. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every single one of them points to a person in which they had a conversation with Jesus or encountered with Jesus. And every time that happened, you could read through the Gospels, and every time that happened, something from people's hearts is revealed. It's always something, either what I want versus what he wants, or what I think versus what he thinks, or what I consider to be true versus what he considers to be true, and what I want to do versus, versus what he wants me to do. It's a conflict of interest. Every time we encounter Jesus, there's a conflict of interest. So a few examples in the Bible, you remember the young, rich ruler? He thought that he was a young, he, he thought that he was a good man. He thought that he was faithful to the law until Jesus told him, how about if you sell your stuff and give it to the poor? Conflict of interest. You know what he did? He walked away. In John chapter 6, which I find this amazing, amazing uh, bad. So Jesus is talking to a bunch of disciples, not just the 12, like a bunch of followers, right? And he tells them what is required of them if they're going to follow him. And after he finished his two-sentence speech... The text says that many disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You know why? Because every time you encounter Jesus, there's a conflict of interest. That was the same case with the Pharisees and their, their, um, their perspective on, on God's law. You know, Jesus comes and says, well, let me give you the right interpretation of the law. But they didn't like it. They didn't like it because he went against their traditions and he went against what they wanted. So they rejected him. You know why? Because it was a conflict of interest. If there's something that we must remember about the Christmas story, is that every time we encounter Jesus, we either reject him or we embrace him. Either we find him attractive and amazing or repulsive and annoying. Some would fall and some will rise. Now, I want to make like a little parenthesis here. Because if you are a Christian... If you are a believer already, that's something that you should always remember. That if you claim to be a believer, some people would find you just as annoying and just as ugly, if you will. They would find you and your faith something repulsive. Therefore, not only we have conflicts with other not only Jesus had conflict with people, but we will experience or we experience conflict with people. There's something about Christianity in this side of the world that tells us that we're supposed to live this peaceful life always. And I don't find that anywhere in the scripture. I'm not saying that our life's supposed to be miserable, but what I'm saying is that conflict is part of the equation. Conflict with others is part of the equation. That's the Christmas story. So the Gospel Coalition a few weeks ago published um, this article talking about this pastor in China that wrote a letter that sent it to the government, and the title of the letter is Declaration of Faithful Disobedience. You got to read that article. It's amazing. Because this, this man, and in his letter, he says, listen, I believe that the government was placed by God, he says. I believe that the gover government has a role in the creation. 
And I have no issue submitting to the government and obeying the government as long as they don't go against my Christianity. Because the ultimate authority, he says, is not, is not the government. The ultimate authority is God. Conflict with people is expected. If you are a believer, you would experience and you should expect conflict. Because not everyone is going to find you amazing. You know what's amazing, though, when you hear all these stories and when you see the reality of what it means to be a Christian? That you never, you barely ever find, if it's a true Christian, you never ever find a person in the history of the church, in the Bible or in the history of the church, that embraced Jesus and then later on after suffering, they say something like, man, that was a mistake. Not one. Because when we find Jesus really amazing, really beautiful, suffering for him is worth it. That was the example of the disciples, Acts chapter 5, being persecuted, being humiliated. And the text says that they were rejoicing because they had been counted worth it of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. That's Christmas to you. Remember Polycarp, one of John's disciples? Right before he's executed, he says this, 86 years I have served him, the Lord. And he has done me no wrong. And then later on, as he's getting burned, he says this. I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour. So that in the company of martyrs, I may share the cup of Christ. That's amazing. That's the Christmas story to you. We got the example of Bonhoeffer, which is an amazing person. Right? Um, So he gets executed, and 10 years later, one of the doctors from the concentration camp says this about him, right before he dies. Um, The prisoners were taken from their cells, and their verdicts uh, of courts martials read out loud to them. Through half-open door in one room of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devoured and so certain and so certain that God heard his prayer. At that place of execution, he again said a prayer and then climbed the steps of the gallows, brave and composed. He was executed in a few seconds. In almost, listen to what this unconverted pagan person says about a Christian. In the almost 50 years that I have worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. That's the Christmas story for you. And I was thinking about this this week because you know how frustrating it has to be for the devil and the people he used that wanted to destroy Christianity Not even the fear of death works. Every single one of these people is, just take me, I want to be with you. Just take me, I want to be with you. Is Christianity risky? Oh, yes. Does it cause conflict and divide people? Oh, yes. People find find Jesus repulsive and annoying sometimes. Is it worth it? Oh, yes. You know why? 
Because Jesus is amazing. Because Jesus is beautiful. Because Jesus is attractive. Because there's nothing better than him. Now, I want, I want you to go back to verse 35 for a second. Because when Simeon says that Jesus reveals the thoughts of our hearts, he's not just talking about non-believers. You know that, right? This is not a message for people that are not Christians necessarily. This is a message for you. See, this is the thing with Christmas. We have conflicts with people that don't believe in Jesus. Just as much Jesus had conflicts with the people that didn't believe in him. But at the same time, as Christians, we still experience conflict with Jesus. But it's a conflict within. Because we are still in the process of learning how to die to the things that we need to die. We still struggle with what I want versus what he wants. What I think versus what he thinks. What I consider to be true versus what he considers to be true. What I want to do versus what he wants me to do. See, Christmas is a reminder that we experience conflict with other people and also conflict from within. J.C. Riley, this Anglican bishop in the late 1800s, he says this, A true Christian is one who has only peace of, is one who has not only peace of conscience, I'll explain that in a second, but war within. He may be known by his warfare as well as his peace. And this is what he says. Being a Christian means that we have been forgiven, accepted, and loved in Jesus Christ. But it also means that we continue to discover and deal with all the wrong things that we have inside of us. Therefore, we still need confrontations with Jesus. You still need encounters with Jesus. You still need to have conversations with Jesus. Because he will point you to everything that is not fixed just yet. So this is not in my notes, so it has to be from the Holy Spirit, I hope. I don't understand how a Christian could live a Christian life without regular uh, devotion or time of devotion with God. I, I don't know how that happens. I don't know how a person can grow without Bible reading and praying. I don't know how that happens without you being surrounded by other Christians that is speaking to your heart. I don't know how people grow without it. Well, that's the Christmas story. You, you need to be confronted by him. You need, to, you need conflict with Jesus. So this week, interesting enough, I was reading a tweet um, from Tim Keller that actually says this. He says, Lord, I worry because I forget your wisdom. I resent because I forget your mercy. I covet because I forget your beauty. I sin because I forget your holiness. I fear because I forget your sovereignty. You always remember me. Help me to remember you. Amen. The, Christ, the Christmas story says that there's conflict involved. Conflict with others and conflict within. But I told you that that sentence, fall and rise, has a double meaning, a second meaning. And the second meaning has to do more like a Christian lifestyle. 
And this is what I mean by that. Some scholars would argue that the word fall means repent, and the word rise means that you're forgiven. So if that is true, and I think it is, it's describing that every time we have conflicts with Jesus as believers, and every time you have a conflict with Jesus as a non-believer, the answer is the same, is the same for both. All we are called to do is to repent and believe over and over and over again. That's why Luther says that the Christian life is a life of repentance. Every time we open the word, every time we hear a good sermon, every time you think about something in the kingdom, it's always an, opportunity, it's always an encounter with Jesus and it's always an opportunity for you to repent. Repent, and he forgives. You know what I found in my own personal life? That repenting is really difficult, like truly repenting. Not just saying, I'm sorry. You know when you're married, for those of you that are married, you know when you say to your spouse, I'm sorry, but you don't really mean it? You just don't want to get in trouble, right? Like I do that to my wife all the time. That's not even in the script, so it has to be true. You know, Hannibal, you said that you were going to help me with the dishes, so I'm sorry, I forgot. No, I didn't forget, I didn't want to do it. That's not what I'm talking about. Repentance, like for real, repentance. That part is painful. Because it's a reminder that you, that you still get it wrong. Because it's a reminder that I'm still flawed, that I have so many flaws within me. That I still need Jesus, that I'm still dependent on him. True repentance is actually hard. Because it requires for you to acknowledge that you're not as awesome and as beautiful and as perfect. That we look this way just because it's Sunday. But inside, that's a different thing. See, that's the Christmas story. But here, and I'm finishing right on time. <laughs> so even though Christmas brings conflict with others and within there's nothing more beautiful than Christmas because it's the most unifying thing there is. All right, so I want you to see, this is going to be really quick. You know, Simeon was a man that was a nobody. No one knew anything about him. He doesn't have a pedigree. He doesn't have a history, no special position, no great name. Actually, Simeon was the most common name you could give to a person at that time. Right? It was like, Hannibal. Actually, that's not, a, that's not a common name, right? Only famous people and serial killers have it. <laughs> but he was a nobody. And yet, God adopted him, God chose him and adopted him and made him part of this beautiful Christmas family. See, Mary was a young girl, a nobody. No big name, no big family, just a humble girl. And yet, God chose her and adopted her into the Christmas family. Joseph is a carpenter, for goodness sake. It wasn't like if back in the days being a carpenter was better. It's the same as today. We have no information about Joseph. He was a nobody. And yet, 
God chose him and adopted him into the Christmas family. The shepherds. At that time in that society, outsiders rejected by society, second-class citizens. And yet, God chose them and adopted them into his family. This is the beauty of the church. You know that the only reason why we worship God together is because he chose you and he chose me and adopted us into one family and we didn't have anything to do with it. You know that in, in the spirit of honesty, I would never choose you as the people that I would hang around with. <laughs> I didn't have to. I naturally would gravitate to the people that look just like me. You know, good looking. <laughs> I'm sorry. And yet, God put us together as one family. That's the beauty of Christmas. Yeah, Christmas is conflicting. And it brings conflict with other people. And it creates conflict within yourself. But there's nothing more unifying than the story of Christmas. In which that baby lived the life that no one has lived. Died the death that we all deserve. And made us one in him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful. You're such an amazing Savior. You are beautiful, beautiful to us. And if there's someone here that hasn't encountered that just yet, please make it happen. And even if there's some of us here that struggle with the reality of who you are, just reveal yourself to them. And for those of us that have been walking with you for a while, Lord, we, that we may always remember that even when you bring conflict into our lives, you are acting like a good surgeon that sometimes needs to make us bleed before he heals you, before we get healed. And we thank you so much for this. How about we stand and we receive the blessing that Jesus Christ guarantees for us? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And the church says, have a blessed day. We love you. Thanks for coming. If you need prayer, please come to the front.